Hello, and welcome to the Diary of an Age Grouper podcast. My name is Jamie Edwards, and I'm a full-time professional endurance coach, age group triathlete, and triathlon fan. The Diary of an Age Grouper podcast is all about content relevant to age groupers. We'll talk to athletes, coaches, and experts who walk the walk. On this episode of The Diary of an Age Grouper, we speak to Tim Reed. Tim is the founder and head coach of RPG Coaching, and he has a unique perspective on the sport. He's raced as an age grouper, been a top professional, and is now working with a wide range of athletes as a professional coach. In this episode, we talk to him about the fundamentals of coaching, phases of training, and get his take on some hot topics in age group triathlon. Enjoy. Tim Reed. Welcome to the Diary of an Age Ripper podcast. Thanks for being here. Now, it's a pleasure, Jamie. Everyone. Thank you. Yeah. Now, I have you. I have my own view on this, and I've got you on for a reason. But what do you think qualifies you as a as a coach? Yeah, I think it's probably not any one thing. Um, it's a combination of factors. Uh, I first and foremost, I like working with people. I understand. I like to get to know people. Um, I think the art of coaching is really understanding personality types. And um, I'd say that's probably one of the bigger drivers behind why I do coaching. Um, it's the it's the real challenge in coaching, I think, is applying all the science that you know, applying the lessons of years of racing uh, to that particular individual. Um, yeah, I've got a, a reasonable sports science background um, and obviously spent quite a big portion of my life trying to make myself as fast as I can as an, as a pro pro triathlete as well. So probably combining all those things, but I, I think, yeah, probably the number one factor is I enjoy it and I like working with people. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good start. So now most of, most people will know, I'm going to assume will know your name. Um, obviously you've got a quite an extensive history in the sport as a professional athlete. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background as a triathlete and then how that led you into coaching? Yeah, I think I got, I got, I was starting to be a PE teacher and I got really interested in um, endurance training in particular. Like I loved the, the more um, science-based subjects at uni. And I think that sort of really pushed me into, I was, I was sort of playing team sports, rugby, basketball, and was far too small and getting, starting to get injured once I was playing properly sized uh, men and so I started running and getting into you know some sprint triathlons and it sort of flowed from there I, I just there was never a um, there was never a oh I'm going to do this as a career or anything like that I just like most people fell into it um, got enthused knew that I had a little bit of talent and then just kept chipping away and and made small incremental gains year after year and to the point that um yeah, I think in 2009, you know, I was lining up at some of the uh, Australian half Ironman series at the time and and finishing on the podium um, before I'd even turned pro, you know, overall. And so then I made that leap in 2010. Um, and by leap, I, I say that, you know, with a bit of an asterisk next to it, because I've never really made a huge leap. I just started racing pro and pulled back gradually on work as, as the results progressed. And Ended up 
you know, thinking that it would be this sort of one or two year hiatus from from work, and then I'd probably go back to age group life, and it turned into a ten or eleven year career uh, as a pro triathlete. Um, and a pretty, when I look back on it now, like it's uh, it was a pretty amazing time of my life. <laughs> yeah, and so when did you get into coaching throughout that journey? Pretty much very early on. So. I think I was already coaching other sports before I started triathlon. So my part-time job to get through uni was coaching basketball, touch football, uh, anything that the schools that I was working at would have me do. And so I was already drawn to coaching. And then um, when, when I started racing, you know, people would just ask me about how they were trained for, you know, a 5k or how that, how I would have them train for a sprint triathlon. I'd already done a lot of reading and, um a bit of study in that area so it's just started writing plans for people and i think i've been you know i was coaching long before i was any good at triathlon um and even when i first turned pro i think i had 25 athletes that i was coaching for the first couple of years i was racing pro to help survive those initial years uh so it's been i've been a coach longer than i've been a serious triathlete okay and through that time, do you have a most successful or satisfying coaching moment? It's a good question. Um, there's been a few. I think, I, I, you know, it's very, you, you do get these offers from pro athletes to, to coach them. And to be honest, it doesn't really excite me to coach a pro who is already established. There's only sort of, if you get them, if they get better and get more results, uh, you sort of, you're in that situation where people say, well, they're already good. There's, n- there's nothing really to gain. I love taking on those sort of athletes who aren't getting results or I've run into who are age groupers and then taking them to a pro level or the pro who's not getting results and, and get them to a world-class level. I mean, Sam Appleton came to me, you know, sort of in that sort of fifth to uh, 10th place range. And we were able to get him, you know, regularly winning races. Steve McKenna was, was obviously hugely satisfying is still hugely satisfying because he, he, uh, we trained together in Boulder for a little bit. And I was just, um, first of all, I could recognize that he had an immense talent, but was just making so many basic mistakes and needed a bit more guidance. And, um, gradually a couple of years into his pro journey, I was able to, he came across and, uh, to see his, performances now is immensely satisfying um but there's also been plenty of age group stories where i you know i've been in tears at the finish line just watching people i've coached who've lost 20 kilos and um had this incredible transformation in their life and i I wouldn't you know i'd put that on on par with some of the pro results that i've had with athletes yeah yeah the finish lines always get me for sure (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, sharing in some of those journeys and and what you go through with the athletes and you you know it sounds dramatic but you you can literally change their lives sometimes so I definitely yeah. find those moments satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned uh, Steve McKenna making mistakes. Um, what are the biggest mistakes you you see age groupers making? Are there two or three that I maybe think, stand out? That I you mean, really I think, think I think I was. Steve is fortunate in some ways in that I, I made even more mistakes and I had to learn the hard way um, with a lot of things. And uh, I, you know, for the classic example is um, and I did this, especially when I started to pull back on work is you think you need to fill every moment, spare moment you have 
to train every spare moment you have you you want to fill it with training and and it just becomes this cycle of fatigue and and overtraining and and learning to sometimes put use a three-hour gap in your day to actually just chill out and recover is is sort of a big um thing that pros do that age groupers just don't factor in or wouldn't even consider you get into this cycle of almost just you become a work and trainaholic as an as an age grouper and you just you can't you feel like you can't afford to rest you can't afford to sit still and i think learning to take a breath and uh not constantly fill my day with with something um is was probably the probably the biggest lesson i learned you know especially going from age group to pro the the training load i had from age group to pro did not drastically change at all the di- biggest difference was obviously stress levels dropped and and the amount of time to recover just increased drastically so I think that would be the biggest mistake I made. Um, there's a whole list that I could go through if I if you're giving me time, I'd, I could have probably prioritised them. But that's that's a real standout one for me. But that's for you. Is, is that what you? Is that common? Is that something you see commonly in age groupers as well? Well, I th- I saw it with Steve too when um, you know I, I've, I'll say he was sort of in an age group phase, even though he was racing pro because he's so damn talented. But he was the same deal in that he didn't understand the power of. Um, pulling back on other things. And, you know, he, I think having, I had more self-belief than him at, at certain points to, um, to pull back on work and, and really, and really push. But I think for an eight, from an age group perspective, uh, it's the same sort of, it's the same sort of battles. I think realizing what is realistically going to benefit you. So that's not, you know, you'd probably see the same when you, when you first talk to an athlete, you say, what, is your available training time and they'll give you sometimes they're married with four kids and a 55 hour a week job and they'll tell you 25 hours and you're like no it's not you know um you know what can you reasonably do where your body will actually absorb the work where the rest of your life won't go to shit um it's a whole different equation so i think finding a realistic and sustainable um amount of training that's that you can absorb and and recover from is very very important and you know you and i both know that one of the main things that keeps people improving and getting better in this sport is just time in the sport and so keeping it sustainable keeping it enjoyable um it's never you know of course there's not going to be it's not an easy sport we're not saying it has to be easy but you can't you can't make it so hard that it's like oh, i can't wait till get to this race and then i'm done you know so it's a uh, the balance has to be there and, and identifying very clear cut, um, realistic um, pathways to get there through realistic training hours, what's going to work with the family, all that sort of thing is, is super, super important. Yeah. Everybody talks about consistency, but you can't have consistency without the sustainability of approach. I think that's where people, people miss out. Do you, do you look at, um, do you try and keep people sort of training year round or do you try and allocate, you know, different blocks of training, whether that's 12, 16, 20 weeks leading into an event. Um, and then, you know, applying that to what you were saying with that common mistake of, of people just trying to cram training into an already busy lifestyle. Yeah. It depends on the athlete. Um, you know, some athletes, even myself, you know, I have to sort of keep training just for my mental health. Um, so there's a level of training for some athletes that might happen year round. Um, I do really like the the sort of historically proven basic periodization of training. Um, I think, you know, there are other ways to skin a cat, but 
I like how it allows people to have downtime, have a little off season. I like to push athletes to take four to six weeks off, you know, and and really detrain to um, at least once a year, if not have two smaller smaller breaks throughout the year, two to three weeks, take some time off training. I think sometimes to keep progressing, you've got to, you know, well, it's not sometimes, I think all the time, everyone has to take a step back with their fitness at certain times to keep progressing overall. Um, I, I like uh, the periodization of building back with, you know, a large aerobic base to start with uh, not racing too much early on um, going into race phases, even, uh, you know, as far as um, some athletes work really well with, you know, going into a six week, really intense block, knowing that that's going to be, their main priority. Whereas for others, that's, you know, that might not be as suitable, but there's a few different approaches I take, but I I do really like athletes to take some time, time off. If not, if they're a bit like me and don't want to stop completely, at least time away from triathlon. So I might, you know, include during my off season, I'd still do something outdoors every day. I just try not to do swim, bike and run. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, I don't think there's any, I wouldn't say there's any set approach I take, but it's uh, as a general rule, um, generally a pretty specific, like a, a bit of an intense phase, you know, time off after the race or at least a lighter phase um, and working around the general periodization principles uh, tend to work pretty true. I've tried different approaches and um, some more successful than others. I've done a reverse periodization on myself and things like that. And it was fun to try, but um I still think old school tends to work quite well. It does. It um, stands the test of time. Um, so just to clarify, you you go for periodization over reverse periodization. So um, when you did your reverse periodization and you sort of you know didn't didn't like it as much, didn't see it to be as successful. What did that look like versus what? Um, what you what you do and what you stick to with your periodization model. Yeah, well, you can get I into think, the details here of, you know, what you know, what a typical week might look like and really get into the yeah. weeds a little bit if that helps to explain it. Yeah, I think with the reverse periodization, it wasn't a bad approach for someone like myself who had 15 years of triathloning, triathloning, if that's a word, behind behind me. You know, I I started, I just kept fit with some short, you know, a fair bit of VO2 max work, um, shorter, sharper training. Um mainly because I had a lot of other things going on too. It wasn't just for the experiment. <laughs> um, and then, you know, getting closer to an Ironman race day, then, then I went into the longer, um, the longer training as the, as we got closer to race day and it, and it, you know, there's a lot of factors there. I'd love to try that sort of approach again without the level of stress I had going on and a lot of other things, but it, um, I don't think that approach would uh, work as well for your typical age group athlete. Um, especially you more of your beginner athletes. I think that the standard periodization where you start with slower, easy uh, training, you know, working at that sort of zone one to zone two below aerobic threshold level and building up duration as the number one thing is a really nice, safe way to build endurance and set yourself up for harder sessions down the track. Um, But yeah, then again, you know, someone with a, a huge base, and years of training can could could play around with different approaches, but the safe bet I think for most people is to is to stick to that um, tried and true principle of you know slowly building up with the volume to start with uh, easy aerobic volume to start with. 
that comes back to that sustainability and consistency piece where there's doing a, a lot of easy work and you're building frequency and, and that's a way for you to build volume. And then once they've established a level of fitness, that's when you can layer in the intensity. Is that fair to say? Exactly. Yep. Bang on. Okay. And what, what are some common sessions in, in that aerobic base phase for you? It's funny. I think the, the, the one that would surprise people that even I used to do was I'd, after I'd have my off season, um, I'd often be five, six kilos heavier. I, I, for myself and for many others, I'll actually get people out for long bushwalks to start with. Um, I think it's very hard to stay in zone two when you, when you're quite unfit and 10 kilos over race weight. So often I'd go out for, um, just really building back that aerobic base at the start of a, a, a aerobic base period. You'd be, might even be brisk walking, lots of riding and swimming, not as much running. Um, it's not overly complicated during that phase. I think, um, you know, I'd still sprinkle in little bits of every energy system. So you'd still be doing some sort of neuromuscular work, really just um, some brief, intense VO2 max work, but not overly regularly and not, it wouldn't be super stressful. So it might just be, you know, once or twice a week, you're sort of touching that, that end of the, of the energy system six times one minute on the bike just to just to um you know there is some evidence that it can help even with building the aerobic efficiency of your base as well but overall it's not complicated it's just building slowly building up some volume and getting getting your, my fat burning getting an athlete's fat burning back on track getting their aerobic efficiency back towards a good level and and bringing often bringing um the weight down a little bit after a a, a bit of a you know, off season where people tend to put on weight. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So a couple of things there, you're setting up the structure for people. And as you said, not really overcomplicating it, but just adding a little bit of stimulus to keep it interesting as much as anything else. And yeah, uh, a little bits, for, a little bits for interest. And, and part of it is, I think, I think there are some good peripheral adaptions that um, I think there's some benefits to it in a physiological sense as well. Um, but yeah, it really has to be done sparingly and never on the run. Obviously it's sort of more in the pool and on the bike to start with. Yep. Yep. And I like the the point about walking as well and starting with, with long walks. Um, I'm a big advocate for people to practice their running and keeping their heart rate low. And often that does mean that a large portion of the run, uh, so to speak, as in it appears as a run in the schedule is actually walking and, um, I have heard quite a few pros talk about that. So, you know, we're talking to a former world champion and uh, elite level professional and he's starting out on his, on his walks, um, you know, when he returns to structured training. So I think that is probably something um, worth reiterating for the, for the age groupers. So how long yeah. is this aerobic base period for? Like how, you know, you're looking for six weeks, eight weeks, is it as long as many weeks as you can? Or is it, and where's that, when's that period where you kind of flick the switch and go, right, we're, we're progressing out of this phase and into our, our next phase of, of training. Depends how much the, of uh, fitness the athletes lost from the previous race build or season. Um, I find these, um, the gen, these sort of general questions quite hard because it's so different for each athlete. But typically, you know, if, if, you know, you might work towards some C races and B races to start with, and you'd be bringing in more strength endurance. You'd race people that I'd probably push my athletes more to race a bit tired and not really freshen up for those first few races. It's just for fun and 
um, keeping the feel for racing. I know some coaches are all about, you know, not having their athletes race too much. And I haven't actually found that work that much in practice, you know, even though on, in theory, if you look at, you know, lactate charts and how well doing sustained blocks is, it doesn't match up in practice, you know, that athletes that have a lot of race experience tend to race pretty well. So I, I still like athletes to race, but I might lower their expectations for those first couple of races. Definitely moving. I mean, the, the aerobic base work is I maintain that pretty much through all phases of the, of their training. Um, but certainly the intensity and specificity goes up from sort of 12, 10 to 12 weeks out from an A race. Um, that would be the typical, I guess, a typical structure. But like I said, it does vary a lot depending on the athlete and what they respond to. You know, there's some some bigger athletes in particular, and again, using generalizations, but big muscular guys, I find I can just give lots of aerobic work and, um, you know, they just respond really well to mass volume. And then you've got other athletes who who do respond quite well to intensity and, and you don't, you, you know, you don't tip them into that into the same level of um, volume that those bigger guys would do. Uh, women and men are different, you know, obviously quite different too. Um, it's, you know, the the generalizations are that women do tend to absorb volume a, a lot better than some of the men that I've coached. So different approaches for each athlete. That's that's part of the, the challenge, I think, is really doing the problem solving early on and working out sort of what this athlete responds to and and how to, what approach to take and and that's the um that's partly too why i think if you're going to go with a coach you need to give them time to really work out what's working and what isn't because it's um they can't have a set formula and think this is going to definitely work because it is every athlete is a little bit different if not a lot different yeah definitely and bear with me with the with the general questions um, there's <laughs> there's method to my madness um so now we're going to go with one more of those questions and I just want to talk a little bit about someone leading into a, a key 70.3 or an Ironman event. Are there any key things as you transition out of that pure aerobic base phase and into a race preparation? Do you, do you sort of have any non-negotiables? Like you mentioned, um, introducing some strength endurance work as an example. Um, and you, know, you mentioned sort of that 10 to 12 weeks leading into a key race. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that phase and some of the things you're looking for and, and generally speaking, you know, what you're, what you're looking to achieve in that period of time. Yeah. So the strength endurance phase, a lot of those sessions are actually not as intense as people would think. I, I, I really think um, triathlon is obviously it's a, it's about aerobic efficiency. It's about, um, you know, ultimately someone's VO2 max is important, but it's, it's more of a measure of uh, aerobic efficiency and strength endurance combined. So I, I really like, people doing their strength endurance sessions often at the top of zone two. So I think a lot of people might have, you know, a typical session would be, we'd get up to sort of 60 minutes of strength endurance work on the bike. Um, you know, we might start at 20 and uh, 20 minutes. So it might be four times five minutes. And by the time, you know, we're, by the time we're, you know, towards the end of that strength block, it might be closer to 60 minutes of intervals. And um, I think people get a bit surprised when I'm like, Oh, I want it done at, you know, sometimes really not that high in intensity. I like perfect form. I think you see people doing strength endurance intervals on the bike and their backs arch, they're rocking all over the bike. And it's not, it's not even done half the time in their aero position. It's about building sustainable 
uh, strength that will help their performance for when we really do try and push up their anaerobic capacity, um, work more on the specific work. Um, so yeah, I think, um, the strength endurance phase is again, yeah, it's, it's certainly tiring, but not, it's not overly high lactate levels. Um, it's, there is certainly the presence of lactate. It's not, you know, it's at that top of zone two, low zone three, but we're certainly not operating near anaerobic threshold for a lot of, for most of those intervals. It will transition as we go. So typically as we, you know, there's not a clear cut point where we go now we're in race specific phase. It Mm. just, those intervals, you might be, you know, you might get up 60 minutes of strength endurance intervals. And then we transition into, well, now you've got 30 minutes of strength endurance intervals, you know, it might be six times five minutes. Um, I'd really love flat TT repeats in heavy gear, um, low, low cadence repeats, and then transitioning into, and then we finish with a 30 minute interval at 70.3 effort, um, at your preferred cadence. So, and then it, you know, it, the other non-negotiables for me, and, and this is a bit controversial, but I, I really like race simulations. Um, one, if not two, quite quite modified from actual race day so it's never as hard as race day but enough that athletes get a really good sense of what they're in for the reasons I, the reason i really like these simulations is not as much for the physiological effect i mean it is a challenging day sometimes it even can cause people to lose for you know much of the next week because they're quite tired from that session but the biggest biggest reason i like it is it, it gets people getting realistic about their pacing it makes them test out their nutrition and hydration and and if they're getting it wrong that's something we can fix before it really counts on race day um so it's getting the egos in check getting pacing appropriate for where they're at and um dialing in yeah race and race fueling and hydration which you can be as fit as you like but if you haven't got your your pacing sorted and your expectations um dialed in and realistic and if you haven't got you know your fuel and hydration on point it's uh it's a bit of a waste of a training block. So that's that's one of the reasons I really like those sessions. I have started moving them over the years further out than I used to. Um, I probably made the mistake of pushing it a bit too close to race day sometimes. So always learning and fixing things. But that's and also, um, yeah, probably a little bit more modified than I used to. I used to be a bit bit more of a hard ass and have people do much closer to a race day. But that's you know. Of getting getting a bit soft in my old age. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you uh, mentioned the the brick sessions or the race preparation because I was going to ask you about it anyway. So when do you recommend it? You said you move it further back from the race. Yeah. So, so what, I mean, I was doing it as close as. So let's say let's just say that the simulation might be, um, might be a hundred k ride, but you're doing sixty kilometers at, at race effort, or let's say, yes, maybe some 50 to 60 kilometers at race effort sustained no gaps in between it's not it's not broken intervals because i really want to test the nutrition side of things and sometimes if you give people five minutes between every 10 minute effort it doesn't really simulate race day or the gut distress they might experience um and so that that and then it might be you know 12k runoff at race pace um I have gone as close as three weeks out and I think it's just too close. So I'm, I'd err more towards now four to five weeks out. Um, and I, I definitely putting more recovery in after that sort of session, giving it the respect it deserves um, to really ensure that it's beneficial and not putting people in a hole um, 
so yeah, that's, that's sort of the timing that I, I look at now. Um, and if, if for some reason that doesn't work or we've got other things we need to work on, perhaps, you know, they've, they've had a, some sort of injury that, so we're chasing more base miles at that period or whatever it is, I might do a, a more modified version two to three weeks out, but it'll be much, much shorter than what, um, than what I just described before. Yeah, cool. And those distances, are they for someone preparing for a 70 point? Oh, sorry, mate. Yeah, I should have said, <laughs> um, given I was just thinking 70.3 is given. That's what a lot of people have coming up. And um, yeah, but obviously, sorry, that was for a 70.3. For an Ironman, it would be very similar. Just double that. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah and this is much about pacing, fueling, equipment choices, all those exactly. sorts of things. So getting people... You know, the amount of people that turn up on race day have never ridden in their aero helmet. And I know you look like a bit of a wally training in <laughs> training in your aero lid and your race suit and things like that, but it's really important to do it. You, you need to know, does that race suit make that your saddle height slightly different? Um, is the aero helmet too hot? Are you sweating too much in with that, you know, with the, the face mask on? Um, is it too hard on your neck? There's so many things you find out with those sessions that you can't, you know, obviously if you, if you're doing B and C races, you can use those to sort of find out the same things, but a lot of people don't have the the money to jump into a, another long course race just to test out some stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I make it very, um, much a simulation in that you use everything that you, everything that you're going to use on race day. The only exception would be like, if you're riding on a highway or something, I probably wouldn't get people to use their deep, uh, front wheel just so that it's a bit safer. Okay, and just quickly back to your strength endurance phase. Are you doing that across swim, bike, and run, or just on the bike and swim, like you mentioned, with the introduction of intensity through that aerobic base building phase? No, I definitely include it on the run as well. I think the runs um, vary individual depending on the person's injury propensity. So, um, but you know, I've you can be as fit as you like, but if you're if you don't have that sort of quad resilience for the faster running and, um, you know, and even just building better economy through strength endurance as well. I think, uh, I think that it's really important to include strength endurance when, when I say with the running though, often the strength endurance might not, you know, people would naturally think hill reps. Um, I do include hill, hill reps for some athletes. I mean, a lot of athletes have calf and Achilles issues. And so, I would still have, I would still consider it, consider a strength endurance run, um, potentially like moderate undulations, but working in sort of the, again, that sort of that Ironman pace where it's comfortable, not overly hard. Um, you're not swimming in lactate, uh, but you're still moving at a pace that it's going to condition your legs for, for when you're actually running faster on race day or for an Ironman, it's actually specific to what you would need to be running on, on, um, on your Ironman race day. So as an, as an example for someone like Sam Appleton, I should use an age grouper as an example. That would be better. Let's say yep. I've got an age grouper who's, you know, a, a three, let's say they're a three fifteen marathon, a marathoner off the bike. Um, their strength endurance sustained intervals would often be at that, um, at that pace. So um, the reason being is, as much as you'd, you're just not going to be producing that much lactate that late into an Ironman. So it's not an overly hard intensity, um, but it is 
you know, it is the name of the game in Ironman is, is sort of resilience as well. So that, that muscular resilience. And so I'll, I'll work a lot at that pace during that strength endurance phase. And when I say a lot, it's this, the majority of the running is still easy aerobic. So um, a typical week might be, if they're doing four runs, there might be, you know, some strides in one of the aerobic runs, um, short 20 second, you know, activation work. You might do sustained tempo, which I'd also consider strength endurance to build that resilience. Um, as we get close to the race, it might be working more into that sort of tempo, higher intensity range, that closer to anaerobic threshold, but, you know, sort of sustained six to 12 minute efforts up to 20 minute efforts. Um, and then that, that would be that sort of that phase, which, or it could be, you know, hill reps or, um, yeah, just, or just working the back half of a long run. Uh, sorry, not even the back half, the final 30 minutes, you know, over hilly terrain, we might just lift it sort of closer to zone three, but again, it's probably below 30% of the, of the total run volume for the week. All right, cool. And then on the subject of strength, uh, this is first of the hot topics I, I wanted to discuss with you. What are your thoughts on strength training? How do you integrate that into programs and coaching for age group triathletes? Yeah, good question. I should have mentioned, I do like strength training pretty much year round for athletes. So especially during their off season, um, I think there's the hormonal benefits of doing strength training. Um, you know, testosterone is released, um, you know, it's it's a, it's an important part of obviously injury prevention for the rest of the year. Um, it's just a great way to keep. It's it's not overly time consuming, but it can set up the set yourself up for when you do need to do big volume. Those through the strength background, or at least with good strength strength training, bio that's in, improved their biomechanics. Um, and I feel like it's super important. It's just one of those um, sort of non-negotiables for me that it's a, twice a week during low training load um, when the aerobic volume is not that high and and even right up to races, particularly um, particularly for Ironman athletes or especially for those that are injury prone, it's, it's at minimum one a week, if not two for nearly most of the year, most of the year round. And I'm going to assume this is a case by case, but are you getting people to go heavy and actually be in the gym moving weight around or is, do you find that body weight and, you know, banded home gym type sessions will do the job? Uh, a mixture of both. So um, I, I actually really like high repetition, not that heavy for the upper body. I think um, we don't want to create too much muscle bulk up top in triathlon and um and I'm talking quite high reps. Like I even you might might have athletes do four sets of 25, um, you know, modified lat pull down for swim strength or, um, but I don't even really get athletes doing that much upper body work. I mean, it's predominantly core and then single leg strength work. Um, I do do, uh, typically I like, activation work pre and post runs that they can do at home could be band work could be just you know some set of body weight squats and simple simple movements just to activate before running and um you know for uh then then in the gym though 
once twice once or twice a week it'll be quite heavy and low reps um so we might do a set of you know four sets of six single leg leg press really heavy and then you know bulgarian split squats things like that but it's a mixture of both yeah is the is the short answer yeah so once or twice a week for a dedicated strength session and then some activation pre-running throughout the week and yeah uh, you find that just helps keep athletes together so to speak yeah i think i think the heavier stuff in the gym um is it is a nice way to actually improve performance um and then the 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 more the activation work and the the sort of stuff that i'll get them to do at home is more about injury prevention um and also about warming up you know a set of calf raises on the gutter before running is, is a pretty typical thing that i'll get athletes with any sort of calf or achilles issues to do it just becomes part of their run you know three sets of 20 really slow eccentric phase to um sort of warm up the calves but also sort of if there's any sort of scar tissue throughout the fascia, you're trying to remodel that fascia and keep the, keep the, the calf muscle elongated, the fascia healing well and that sort of thing. So that's, that's sort of a typical protocol for, um, for most athletes is yeah. I incorporate it into a lot of sessions, a lot of homework, and then just those two heavier sessions to really hit, hit the strength training properly. Keeping it simple. All right, next hot topic, zone two. Obviously, it's a bit of a buzz at the moment. It's it's <laughs> been around for a long, long time, but it's sort of come back to the to the top, and everyone's talking about it. Can you just maybe talk about what what you call zone two and the value and purpose it has for age group triathletes? Yeah, um, like you said, it's not a new concept. I think any triathlon coach who's been coaching for a while has been prescribing predominantly zone two for a long time. Um, I like to, for those that don't measure their, you know, aren't measuring lactates or don't have, um, haven't done any proper lab testing. I think the easiest way to describe zone two is if once you, it's sort of to the point where you um, can, basically, if you can hold a conversation, um, you're sort of either zone one or zone two and more likely zone two. Um, Once you're getting to that point where it's starting to get a little bit hard to hold a smooth conversation, often that's about aerobic threshold. Um, and so it's a, a really easy way to think about it. Uh, I think people used to say, how the hell do you do, you know, a 25 to 30 hour training week? And I don't think it's just that so much of the training is so comfortable. Like it's really not that hard. Um, I was, as an athlete, I loved to gray zone as well. So I was not the best example of this, but I never, it was interesting. I loved to gray zone on the bike. And I never gray zoned on the swim or run. I'd swam easy and, and did the intervals hard on the, on the swim and the run. And they would probably outperform my talent level throughout my career. And cons- they were consistent too. You know, I was, I'm a terrible swimmer, but I would, I think I always swam above where I should have because I did polarize the training really well and stick to a lot of zone two. And then, especially in the water where most people don't, you know, people get caught up in squads and swimming trying to race the person next to them or just worrying about times the whole time instead of focusing on the feeling. Um, Whereas on the bike, I was just loved gray zoning. I loved going fast on the bike and it was, I would have days where I could, you know, lead off the bike and then other days where I'd be 50 Watts off. And I I put a lot of that inconsistency, a lot of my overtraining throughout my career, simply to not 
doing proper zone two on the bike. Um, yeah, I, I really started doing more testing on myself as a coach than I did as an athlete. Cause you, you're always sort of, I think my ego got in the way many times and I'd always tell myself I was, you know, this is my zone too, you know, but in reality, it was a lot lower than what I used to do a lot of my training at. So, um, so sorry, it was a lot higher. I was doing it a lot higher than what my actual zone two would have been. So, um, yeah, that's <laughs> basically the beauty of zone two is it's just, it allows you to build consistent volume. Uh, it's where so many amazing aerobic adaptations happen. Um, the capillarization, the uh, ability to burn fat improves out of sight. Um, and the best thing is you don't get injured and or have that overtraining effect where you, you know, you can't sleep all night because you've been, you know, circulating high levels of lactate for four hours on the bike and have chronic cortisol overload. So um, as much as it is a buzzword and uh, people like you and I are probably like, oh, what are people talking about? It's been around forever. It is. I'm sort of glad it is a buzzword because it is super important and people need to find out where their zone two is if they, if they, um, and if, and stick with it because it works. <laughs> yeah. It's simple. It's sustainable and it's very effective. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, that's why it's the buzzword again now is because it's almost like that. It almost has come full circle and it's, it's a way, it's a way for it to be a quick fix maybe. And that's why it's come to the fore again is like, oh, just all you got to do is heaps of zone two, which obviously it's not only zone two, but it's it's zone two in amongst a good mix of all the other work and looking at an individual athlete's strength and weaknesses and, and what they're preparing for in terms of racing. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, and I've read a tweet from Alan Cousins the other day, which I really resonated with. I don't agree with everything Alan says, I, I really like his thoughts on a lot of things, but this one I, I fully agreed with. He was like, um, when you stop, when you know, sort of when your results plateau, um, you, you should probably drop back to more zone two or more easy training. And mm. if your results plateau, you might need more intensity, you know? So it's sort of most people fall into two camps. Um, you definitely can just keep, you can keep doing the base and easy aerobic work until you're not getting sort of much more out of it. And then I think, that's the point. You really need to bring in some intensity. And then once you start to plateau and you're, you're sort of clutching a bit and feeling like you're not getting anywhere, that's you go back to a big base phase. Um, so, yeah, I, I like that. I like the way he put that. And I, I sort of agree with that. I think it's not, it's not the answer for everyone, um, but it could be the answer for everyone at different times. So, um, you know, certainly... I've had some great results when I'd just be in the middle of a big base block and wasn't even did a race out of nowhere just to, just to, as a training session and had one of my best ever races and then thought, Oh, that must be the answer. That's what I have to keep doing for every race. Six months later, you have some of the worst races trying to do that approach. You know, you do have to, um, you do have to mix up the stimulus for sure. Mm, time and a place for everything. Exactly. Yeah. All right, wearables for age group triathletes. I'm talking aura wings, whoop straps, wearing your Garmin, looking at HRV, resting heart rate. Again, a bit of a, a buzz topic at the moment. So wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, on well, it's interesting. I, I mean, I'm uh, most people know I've got some insomnia issues and um, 
I, I sometimes feel like these wearables can create even bigger problems for people. <laughs> um, you know, I, I know people waking up through the night and checking things and, um, you know, so I still think there's got to be a level of common sense. Uh, I like, I personally love, we get the athletes to use the HRV for training app where they'll do one measurement in the morning. Um, typically, you know, a standing measurement, maybe put the, put their chest strap on the coffee machine because we know that that's where they're going to stand waiting for the coffee machine to, to warm up. But I like orderings too. I think that um, depending on the athlete, I think uh, it, for most people, it's a, it's a positive thing to have those sort of objective recovery readings. I like the way the ordering algorithm works. It's an average throughout the night. I don't like the whoop strap um, because it takes a single measurement in time and it assumes that's your deepest point of sleep or and a lot of things could affect that if you had a big meal that night if you had one drink you don't that the whoop strap won't tell you necessarily know whether you've had another good sleep after it's taken that measurement point um so i think it, they're good i think for particularly anxious athletes um it it can sometimes add another level of stress that um maybe they they should just let their coach view the data and and not look at themselves um so i can i can see the pros and cons overall i'm i'm more on the pro side yeah i'm i'm noticing a common theme here is that everything has its place but you try and keep things simple um which i can definitely uh relate to and resonate with for sure but kind of yeah through the hot topics but also just talking about general training principles it's keep it simple apply it um, when it's applicable and uh, and it's going to give you the the best results doing it that way. Yeah, I think so. Um, I had a conversation with a client this morning who's very clever and got fell into the habit of always trying to, um, I guess, overcomplicate things. And and now you know we've worked together for years, but he said, oh, it's you can you know for example, we're looking at HRV. HRV is great, but it doesn't tell you. It can really, it obviously tells you whether your nervous system's ready to go again for more training, but it doesn't tell you if you've got really sore muscles or, you know, just if at a muscular level, you need another day's recovery. And, you know, he said, it's, it really is art versus science. And I sort of feel like it's more like common sense versus science. So you've got to, you've still got to use common sense. <laughs> yes. Yes. You can't just do it because your, your ring or your watch tells you to exactly. do it. Yep. That's right. All right, mindful of time. So I've got one more hot topic and then we might wrap it up for, for the day and, and pick up another time. But mass versus mass or wave starts versus rolling starts for age groups. And as part of that, do you think there should be an elite amateur wave as well? Just to give a couple of, couple of minutes on your thoughts around these topics. Yeah, good question. This is something I feel pretty strongly about, actually. I am so bummed for very high level age groupers who can't race each other. Um, and I feel like that there, there needs to be a solution to that. I think I certainly don't want to bash um, Ironman here because I'm, I actually think Ironman are very responsive to feedback and make changes when people want them. So um, my thoughts are that it should be those that want to go top 10 in the age group. They race, they start in a wave together essentially. And People that are want to just do a time and feel safe in the water, that's totally fine. I understand that. 
they can do the rolling start if they want, but they're not eligible for the top 10 awards in that age group. Um, alternatively, like you just mentioned, you have an elite age group race and people that have got, you know, top five in their age group um, can race in one wave together to try and win, especially when it's a non-pro race and you have the first person to cross the finish line doesn't necessarily win the race. I think it's a real bummer for event sponsors it's a bummer for the local news. Like there's nothing better for an athlete than crossing the line, holding up the tape. Um, and you know, that, that just doesn't happen. It becomes a tactical game of, well, where should I start within that rolling start to maximize being with the most number of people on the bike, um, or the swim. And that's a bit of a shame. So even though I understand the rolling start, I don't think it should be completely ditched. Um, I feel like there needs to be a, a, a change to allow, the more competitive um, and elite age groupers to really race against each other. Yeah. Okay. So if it's going to stick with rolling start, there should be a separate wave um, or, you know, for those elite amateurs or guys gunning for the top 10 to start together. Um, yeah, I think that, that's that kind of the be, summary. That's one. I think there's two options. There's that option or you just have age group waves Um and people can put themselves in for the age group awards category, but they have to, they have to all start together basically. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, probably the first option's best. So you don't have, because, you know, in, in a certain races, maybe you have so many people that it just becomes almost like a mass start again. Um, but potentially having to qualify to get into that elite age group category is a cool thing. I think people love working towards those little, little um steps those goals to get to get mm. to the next point and then it could be that's how you earn once you're in that category and if you get a top five there then you have the option of a pro license or um i think that that all that makes sense and it keeps people really incentivized um, but there's nothing you know i don't think for me i always had my best races when i was side by side or could see someone or was racing someone i was not um you know, I, I loved the the back and forth and the mind games and the and the ability to race someone and push push yourself to try and beat someone. So I think that's part of racing, and it's a shame that um, people have to miss out on that sometimes. Or if they potentially had more in the tank and just didn't get didn't get to put it all out there because they didn't they thought they had it wrapped up and you know all the different situations that happens with the, with the rolling starts, but um, and like I said, at the same time, I understand people that would want to have a rolling start. I, the swim can be bloody scary. So it makes sense to have two options. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, interesting insights and definitely opens up another conversation around that pro versus age group and getting, uh, getting the pro license, which I know you have some thoughts on, but mindful of time, you've, you've got to go, you're, you're living an age group life. Now you've got to go pick up <laughs> your, your kids and the wife's working. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we will, we'll hit pause for now and uh, we will, we will get you back another time. Yeah. Let's, let's do another section for sure. It's been good You've to agreed chat. on record now. So we're definitely going to get back. <laughs> uh, is, before we go, is there anything else you, you want to mention anything you're doing with uh, RPG? Um, so we do have a aero camp coming up in January, January 4th to 9th in Jindabyne. Um, the whole point will be, we'll have our usual training camp with, um, Clint, Clint, Clint uh, Rollings and I down there coaching the camp, but we'll also have Jim Manton um, using the track to do some aero testing. Jim Manton sort of a world-renowned bike fitter and aerodynamic specialist. Um, and basically we're sort of lacking a lot of that 
in Australia, especially for outdoor testing. And we want to get it off the ground so that Jim can, we'll have a heap of equipment there. Jim will do a pre-screening of people's um, positions to make sure that they're at least pretty close. So we don't have to make great changes on the day. And then, uh, yeah, hopefully get people, you know, 10, 15, 20 watts quicker, if not more from just a day of testing. Um, so that's what we've got in the in the pipeline at the moment. And we're hoping to get that off the ground. We do need sort of at least 20 people to make it worth Jim's time to come over. He's a busy man, got a lot going on. Um, but certainly if we could get him to Australia, um, it would be amazing. We've got all our all the details at rpgcoaching.com slash training camp. You'll see it there. Um, so check it out and let me know if you're interested and I'll fill you in with all the information. Oh, that sounds pretty good. And definitely another topic of conversation, which I know you are really passionate about. So again, maybe another one for me to jot down for next time we chat. Yep. That sounds good. I can get more in depth with it, but yeah, um, definitely. I think you know, people go and do aero testing and and I've seen the results that Jim gets and it could be a couple of years training to get those sort of wattage gains to, to gain that in fitness. So I think it's something that people should look pretty seriously into. Yeah, it's an interesting topic for the, the whole keep it simple, nail the basics versus what what can you do with with things like this and aero testing and, you know, at the, especially at the top level, but I think it trickles all the way through if you can get, if you can get the best of both worlds, it's, uh, it becomes a no-brainer. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's very, it sounds very interesting. All right, well, we can put all the all the details um, in some of the posts that we do and, um, yeah, link it back so people can check it out if it's something they're interested. Sounds good. In, in doing. Yeah, all right, well, awesome. you, you better go. So, um, yeah, we'll leave it there. And thanks again for your time. It's very much No worries. We'll chat more soon. Cheers. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Age Grouper podcast. If you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for future guests, please contact us via the Diary of an Age Grouper Instagram page. Alternatively, you can email info at jetcoaching.com.au. Don't forget to like, comment, share, and subscribe. This podcast was born to discuss all things age group triathlon. As an athlete, coach, and fan of the sport, I've always been intrigued with different approaches to training and how to optimize an individual's performance. We will speak to athletes who perform at a high level, as well as those with an interesting story. We will speak to coaches with a vast array of experience and also experts in various fields. We want to sift through what the physiology labs tell us, as well as what we see the pros doing and take the lessons that apply to us. This is the Diary of an Age Grouper.